Hello, this is Empires and Civilizations. Episode 7, The Eyes of Cowards Do Not Close. After the Battle of Yarmouk, the defeated Byzantine forces hastily retreated north, unable to do battle. Luckily for the Byzantines, the Muslims weren't ready to do battle either. Although Abu Ubaidah sent a detachment to reoccupy Damascus, the Muslims spent the next month resting, healing, and collecting and distributing spoils. In early October 636, Abu Ubaidah held a war council to decide the next course of action. Various objectives were suggested, and since the Muslims could not achieve a consensus, Abu Ubaidah wrote to Umar to decide the matter. Umar ordered the Muslims to capture the holy city of Jerusalem. The Muslims arrived outside Jerusalem in early November, and the Byzantine garrison withdrew behind the fortified walls. For the next four months, the siege continued unabated. Finally, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, Sophronius, offered to surrender the city and pay Jizya only if the Caliph would receive the surrender in person. When the Patriarch's terms became known to the Muslims, Sherbil suggested that, rather than wait for Umar to arrive, they should pretend that Khalid was the Caliph. After all, Khalid and Umar were similar in appearance, and the citizens of Jerusalem only heard of Umar from reports. The next day, Khalid, dressed in the poorest clothes available, as was Umar's style, rode up to the fort. But Khalid's reputation preceded him, and the plot was discovered. No talks happened that day, and Abu Ubaidah was forced to write to the Caliph, inviting him to come to Jerusalem. With a handful of companions, Umar would undertake what would be the first of four journeys to Syria. Upon arrival, Umar was welcomed not as a tyrannical conqueror, but as a peace-loving leader. He treated the Byzantine leaders cordially. In April 637, a pact was drawn up outlining the terms of surrender. During Umar's ten-day stay in Jerusalem, Sophronius took him for a tour around the city. Seeing the poor state of the Temple Mount, Umar ordered the site to be cleaned and that a mosque be constructed on the site. Sophronius invited Umar to pray in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but Umar famously declined, instead opting to pray a safe distance away from the church. Umar explained that had he prayed in the church, future Muslims would commemorate that event by erecting a mosque in its place. In essence, Umar wanted to preserve this Christian holy site, and it was this episode of religious tolerance that turned Umar into a legend. By the way, the Mosque of Umar, which stands just next to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today, is located on the site where Umar prayed, in case you were wondering. With Umar's departure, the conquest resumed. Once again, Yazid besieged Caesarea, though the port city could not be taken until 640. By then, the city surrendered not to Yazid, but to his brother Muawiyah, since Yazid died in 639. You'll see why a little later. Abu Ubaidah and Khalid, with an army of 17,000 men, marched north to take northern Syria. The first leg of their journey was easy, as the Muslims already controlled Damascus, and the Amessans welcomed the Muslims' return. Their next objective was Kinasarin, and Khalid and his mobile guard would lead the way. After a few days, the Muslims reached Hazir, several miles away from Kinasarin, where they met another Byzantine army. The Byzantine general, Minas, understood that if he stayed in Kinasarin, he would be besieged which would certainly lead to a defeat since he did not expect any aid from Heraclius. Instead, Minas took the offensive, hoping to defeat the leading elements of the Muslim army before its main army arrived. But it appears that Minas either underestimated Khalid or had never heard of Khalid, because as the Battle of Hazir was still in its early stages, Minas was killed. As news of Minas's death spread among his men, the Byzantines were more determined than ever to win, yet their desire to avenge Minas's death would be their undoing. It was said that not a single Byzantine soldier survived the Battle of Hazir. 
As soon as the battle was over, the people of Hazir surrendered their city. The garrison at Kinusarin that did not accompany Minas locked themselves behind their fort. As Khalid arrived, he sent a foreboding message to the garrison, quote, If you are in the clouds, Allah would raise us to you or lower you to us for battle, end quote. Kinusarin promptly surrendered to Khalid. All this took place in June 637. After Abu Ubaidah joined Khalid, the two marched to Aleppo, where another Byzantine army led by the general Joachim was waiting for them. Joachim clashed with the mobile guards six miles south of Aleppo, but they were defeated and forced to retreat into their fort. Aleppo was one of the last major Byzantine-held cities in the Levant. Consisting of a walled city and a fort a quarter mile long, surrounded by a moat, the city would be a tough nut to crack. The Muslims laid siege to the fort. Joachim led some bold sallies to break the siege, but all were unsuccessful. Afterwards, the Byzantines settled on a strategy of holding out and hoping that reinforcements would come, but none came. Four months later, in October 637, the Byzantines surrendered on terms. While the soldiers of the garrison were allowed to leave peacefully, Joachim converted to Islam and now joined the Caliphate's army. Once Aleppo was taken, Abu Ubaidah sent Malik Ashtar to capture Azaz, a city to the north. After completing his objective, Malik signed a pact with the local inhabitants, then returned to Abu Ubaidah, who marched west to capture Antioch. Twelve miles east of Antioch, the Muslims encountered a Byzantine force on an iron bridge spanning the Orontes River and defeated it. The Muslims entered Antioch on October 30th, 637, and the defeated Byzantine soldiers were allowed to leave in peace. With the fall of Antioch, the Byzantines had no way to stage a military comeback in Syria, making the next part of the Islamic conquest relatively easy. Khalid captured Latakia, Jabla, and Tartus, thus conquering northwest Syria by the end of 637. The next few months were characterized by relative peace in Syria. The various Muslim commanders were now free to handle administrative duties in the provinces that Abu Bakr assigned to them. Khalid himself received a lower appointment in Kinsarin under Abu Ubaidah. But that peace would be short-lived, because although the Byzantines no longer possessed the resources to wage campaigns, Heraclius was able to incite Christian Arabs of the Jezera to take up arms against the Muslims. Rather than amass their forces, the Muslims decided upon a defensive campaign. Elements of the mobile guard were concentrated at Emesa, and both Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and Kaka bin Amr sent detachments to assist the army in Syria. By the time the Christian Arabs arrived in Emesa, the Muslims were safely fortified. The Christian Arabs began to besiege the city, but they learned that three Muslim columns were advancing from Iraq. Quickly realizing the perils of their position, the Christian Arabs withdrew. Although the Muslims were never in any real danger, they realized that the Christian Arab threat would continue to exist so long as the region up to the Taurus Mountains was not pacified. So the Muslims had to travel even further north. In the summer of 638, under Umar's orders, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas sent Ayyad ibn Ghanam to conquer the Jezera, which Ayyad accomplished within the span of a few weeks. In the autumn, Abu Ubaidah sent several columns, including two commanded by Khalid and Ayyad, to raid Byzantine territory as far as Tarsus. When Khalid arrived at the Byzantine garrison of Morash, it was so terrified of him that it surrendered on condition that it and the local populace be spared. Khalid returned to Kinnisarin with vast quantities of wealth. Although Khalid gave his wealth lavishly to his soldiers, members of the Muslim army sang songs about him and received gifts. One man in particular recited a poem honoring Khalid in Kinnisarin, and in return, Khalid gave the man a gift of 10,000 dirhams, it was also known that prior to his expedition to Marash, 
Khalid took a special bath where he used a certain substance meant to have a soothing effect on the body. This substance contained alcohol, which was in direct violation of the Muslim ban on alcohol. But, in Khalid's defense, he wasn't drinking this substance. However, for the pious, frugal Umar, this was the last straw. The Caliph dismissed Khalid from the army, not demoted as Umar had done previously, but dismissed. Khalid returned to Medina, not as a triumphant war hero, but as a disgraced man. Khalid's dismissal was met with resentment by most Muslims, but Umar explained his decision, quote, I have not dismissed Khalid because of my anger or because of any dishonesty on his part, but because people glorified him and were misled. I feared that people would rely on him. I want them to know that it is Allah who does all things, and there should be no mischief in the land, end quote. Umar's decision was motivated by his fear that the people would begin putting their faith in Khalid rather than Allah. Khalid returned to Kinisarin, and although the conquest continued, his days of campaigning were over. Khalid would live for less than four more years. He bought a house in Emesa for his family and settled into a modest retirement. In January or February 639, a plague started in Amawas, and soon it swept through Syria and Palestine. Thousands of Muslims died during this epidemic, including some of Khalid's closest friends, Abu Ubaidah, Shurabil, Yazid ibn Abu Sufyan, and Durar, but not Khalid. In time, Khalid would forgive his rival, Umar, so much so that he named Umar his heir. In 642, at the age of 58, Khalid caught an illness and died in his bed. His last words were, quote, I die even as a camel dies. I die in bed, in shame. The eyes of cowards do not close even in sleep, end quote. News of Khalid's death was met with sadness across the Muslim world. In Medina, for example, the woman took to the streets to mourn en masse. Khalid ibn al-Walid was not just the greatest military of the Islamic world, but perhaps of all time. He was one of the few generals in history to remain undefeated. He was the only commander in history to defeat the Prophet Muhammad. During his illustrious career, Khalid led the armies of an upstart nation and defeated two regional superpowers. Without Khalid, the Muslim conquest may never have been successful. Never again would a military commander match Khalid's skill and style. After all, Napoleon was remembered for his defeat at Waterloo, and Genghis Khan was never as brave a fighter. Courage, toughness, leniency, piety, intelligence, Khalid had it all. No wonder he would be remembered as the Sword of Allah. With the conquest of Syria drawing to a close, one of the few major Muslim commanders still alive, Amr ibn al-As, set his sights on another region, Egypt. It was after the surrender of Jerusalem that Amr started devising his plan for invading Egypt, but at the time, Umar did not think it was worth it. However, a few years later, when the Syrian campaign was nearly complete, Amr reminded Umar of his proposal. There was no country in the world, Amr said, at once so wealthy and defenseless. After all, Egypt was once considered the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. Also, after about a decade of Sassanid occupation, the Byzantines reclaimed Egypt in 629, meaning their defenses would be weakened. Even worse was the fact that the Byzantines were persecuting the Coptic Church, making it reasonable to believe that the Copts probably viewed the Muslims more favorably than the Byzantines. Amr reminded the Caliph that the Byzantine governor of Jerusalem, Aridion, had fled to Egypt prior to the city's surrender and was now rallying imperial forces. Umar understood Egypt's value, but he also thought that Amr underestimated the size of the Byzantine forces. Still, he sanctioned the plan, though he ordered Amr to keep it secret. 
Amr and a small force of 4,000 men reached Rafa, one stage away from the Egyptian town of El Arish, when messengers arrived bearing letters from the Caliph. Amr knew that these letters did not bear good news, so Amr marched his men until they arrived at the valley of El Arish, and only then did he read the Caliph's dispatches. They instructed Amr to return if he was in Palestine, and to keep moving forward if he was in Egypt. Since they were technically in Egypt, Amr decreed that his men will advance in accordance with the Caliph's orders. But I'm going to pause the narrative in order to properly introduce the man who would lead the conquest of Egypt. Amr ibn al-Las was born into the Quraysh tribe, and originally opposed Muhammad, though he converted to Islam after the Muslim victory in the Battle of the Trench. Muhammad praised Amr as, quote, one of the good men of the Quraysh, end quote, as Amr was widely respected for his intelligence and valor. Muhammad made Amr the governor of Oman, and Amr remained there until Muhammad's death. As I probably mentioned before, Amr served with distinction in the Ridda Wars and the Muslim conquest of Syria, even commanding the Muslim right wing in the Battle of Yarmouk. Though not as physically imposing as his superior, Khalid ibn al-Walid, Amr also excelled in swordsmanship and horsemanship. Unlike Khalid, however, Amr was known for being intelligent and well-cultured. For example, Amr was passionately fond of music. Such was the character of the man who invaded Egypt. Now that the Arabs were in Egypt, the Byzantines scrambled to prepare defenses. Fortresses and the walls of major cities, which had suffered from the Sassanid invasion, were rebuilt and strengthened. From El Arish, the Muslims traveled west along a road that led them through the desert, though there were occasional water sources along the way. The first hostile city the Muslims encountered was Pelusium. The Muslims possessed no siege engines and were too weak to take the city by storm, so they decided to starve the garrison. After two months, as one of the few Byzantine sallies was being repulsed, the Muslims seized control of one of the city gates. They forced their way into the city and Pelusium was taken. The ease with which Pelusium fell to the Muslims and the lack of Byzantine reinforcements were attributed to the treachery of Cyrus, Patriarch of Alexandria, who decided not to act. Amr resumed his march in mid-January 640. His losses were replenished by a number of Bedouins who flocked to his standard. Amr preferred to march along desert roads. As he reached Bilbaeus, Amr encountered a Byzantine force led by Aridion. Two Christian monks were sent to negotiate, and Amr granted them four days to consider their options. On the second night, Aridion led a surprise attack on the Muslim camp, but the attack was disastrous, and Aridion was killed. Although the Byzantines lost 1,000 killed and 3,000 prisoners, Bilbaeus detained Amr for a full month. Although the Muslims won every battle thus far, Amr would discover that Egypt would be no pushover. The next stage of the conquest was going to be more difficult, as Amr was marching towards the formidable fortress of Babylon, located in the heart of what is now Cairo. The Byzantines were led by Theodore, commander of all Byzantine forces in Egypt, and Cyrus, the Patriarch. The fort's location gave it great strategic value, and the Byzantines were not going to let the Muslims take it easily. Amr knew that Umar had promised reinforcements, but it became clear that those reinforcements weren't going to arrive anytime soon. For the moment, Babylon was out of reach, so instead, Amr concentrated on the less important fortress of Umm Dunayn, located to the north of Babylon. Having captured Umm Dunayn, Amr was now able to transport his troops across the Nile River via boats. Amr next marched around the fortress of Babylon to the ancient city of Memphis. Memphis had fallen into decay since the foundation of Alexandria, but in Amr's time, the vast ruins of Memphis were still present. Amr's objective was the city of Fayum. However, the Byzantines had anticipated this and set up guards under the command of a general named John. 
In addition, the Byzantines established an observation post at Lahun to report enemy troop movements to John. Finding it impossible to break through the Byzantine defenses, Amr moved into the desert hills, looting livestock along the way. The Muslims moved to the city of Banasa, which was taken by storm. Amr learned that a small Byzantine force led by John had been following him, but John advanced too far. He quickly ordered a rapid retreat, but the location of his camp was betrayed to Amr by a Bedouin chief. John's force was surrounded and slain to the last man. Although the Muslims failed to take Fayum, Amr accomplished more than one would think. Amr successfully withdrew his army to a much safer position and established his headquarters there. Even better, the reinforcements that Umar promised were beginning to arrive. Led by Azubair ibn al-Awam, a companion of Muhammad, it consisted of 12,000 volunteers. They arrived in the neighborhood of Heliopolis in early June. Now that it was summer, the Nile was overflowing. Now was the time for the Byzantines to defeat the isolated Muslim armies, but strangely, they decided not to seize on the opportunity. As Amr marched into the Muslim camp in Heliopolis, the Byzantines lost this opportunity. However, by now, Theodore had amassed a considerable force by drawing troops from various towns along the Nile Delta and had retaken Umm Danain. Although we do not know exactly the size of the Byzantine forces, they must have had at least 20,000 men. In contrast, the Muslims had only 15,000 men. Although both sides did not realize it at the time, the Battle of Heliopolis, fought in July 640, would decide Egypt's fate. While the battle was underway, an Arab detachment managed to fall upon the Byzantine rear. Caught between two armies, the Byzantines became disorderly and the survivors fled into the Umdenain fortress. However, when the defenders learned of the terrible slaughter the Byzantines faced, they lost heart and fled down the Nile River to Nikiu. The Muslims captured Umdenain a second time. The Byzantine garrison at Fayum fled to Abuwi, and, not wasting any time, Amr captured Fayum and Abuwi in a series of ruthless battles. The Byzantines only held the Babylon fortress, which became Amr's next objective, and the nearby island of Rauda. The mighty Babylon fortress boasted walls 8 feet thick and as high as 30 feet. It was built by the Roman Emperor Trajan in approximately 100 CE, possibly in response to a Jewish rebellion in Alexandria. It was said that the original foundations of the fortress were laid by Nebuchadnezzar, who gave the fortress the name of Babylon, his capital. By the beginning of September, Amr settled in for a blockade of the fortress. However, since the fortress was bordered by the Nile River on the west, the Muslims could not completely surround it. One month later, as the Byzantines were slowly deteriorating, Cyrus decided to sneak across to the island of Rauda during the night in order to negotiate with the Muslims in complete secrecy. Amr simply offered Islam, jizya, or the sword. The Byzantine officials failed to reach an agreement, so they asked to be granted a month to consider the matter, but Amr gave them only a three-day armistice. By now, the actions of Cyrus had disgraced him in the eyes of his comrades, who decided to fight. On the fourth day, when the armistice expired, the Byzantines sallied out of the fortress and fell upon the Muslim camp. Although the Muslims were surprised, they managed to push the Byzantines back, and after severe losses, the Byzantines retreated behind the walls of their fortress. Cyrus took it upon himself to draft a treaty that decided on subjection and tribute, and he departed for Alexandria in order to get Heraclius to ratify the treaty. However, this treaty was rejected, and news of this reached the Muslim camp before the end of 640. The Nile waters were receding, meaning that assaults on the walls would become more frequent. Finally, one night, a party led by Azubair stormed the walls using scaling ladders and captured the fortress. A treaty of surrender was drawn up, stipulating that the defenders would be allowed three days to evacuate. 
they were allowed to carry only what was necessary for a few days' sustenance. With the fall of the Babylon fortress, the conquest of Egypt was halfway done. Amr then marched north towards his next target, Alexandria. However, he first needed to capture the city of Nikyu, which held high strategic value since it defended the route between Babylon and Alexandria. The Muslims encountered the Byzantines at Tarnan, a regular crossing place on the Nile along the way to Alexandria. The Byzantines were defeated, allowing Amr to continue marching towards Nikyu. The Nikyu garrison was weak, and when the Byzantine commander saw the Muslims coming, he freaked out and fled via boat to Alexandria. Nikyu fell without significant resistance. As the Muslims marched north, they managed to clear every Byzantine opposition. Amr arrived in Alexandria with a force of 20,000, while the Byzantines must have had no less than 50,000. Approaching the city from the southeast, the Muslims must have marveled at the sight of Alexandria. Even in the post-classical era, Alexandria contained a number of landmarks. The Serapium, Diocletian's Column, the Cathedral of St. Mark, Cleopatra's Needles, and of course, the Pharos, or Lighthouse of Alexandria, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Being well supplied from the sea, Alexandria would be hard to take, especially because the Byzantines had mounted catapults along the city walls. Meanwhile, in Constantinople, the royal court was watching the events in Egypt closely. However, before any official action could be taken, Emperor Heraclius died on February 11, 641. Although he rescued the Byzantine Empire from the Sassanids, he could not rescue it from the Arabs. According to Heraclius' will, Constantine, the son of his first wife Eudokia, and Heraclonus, the son of his second wife Martina, would become co-emperors. Eudokia was not willing to have her son share the throne, and Constantine, the elder of the two brothers, was more popular. The Patriarch of Constantinople, Sergius, proclaimed Constantine the sole emperor. In accordance with his father's wishes, the newly crowned Constantine III ordered a massive fleet to be sent to Alexandria. However, Constantine died on May 25, 641. The nature of his death is uncertain, but Martina was now free to proclaim Heraclonus the sovereign of the Byzantine Empire. However, a Byzantine general named Valentine marched to Martina's residence in Chalcedon and demanded that Constantine's son, Constans, become co-emperor. All this Byzantine infighting prevented the imperial forces from liberating Alexandria, which fell to the Muslims sometime before November 641. The Treaty of Alexandria was signed on November 8, 641, with the following provisions. 1. All who recognized the treaty would gain a fixed tribute. 2. Both sides agreed to an armistice of about 11 months that would expire on September 28, 642. 3. During the armistice, the Muslims could only maintain their positions and not occupy Alexandria. 4. The Byzantine garrison in Alexandria was allowed to depart along with all their possessions, but they had to be subject to a monthly tribute. 5. No Byzantine armies were allowed to attempt to recover Egypt. 6. The Muslims were not allowed to interfere with the Christians. 7. The Jews would be allowed to remain in Alexandria, and 8. Muslim hostages would be handed over by the Byzantines, and vice versa. Of course, the treaty would require ratification from the Byzantine Emperor and Umar, but the 11-month armistice allowed ample time for that. The treaty was ratified by Heraclonus before he died in November 641, and, in accordance with the treaty, the victorious Muslims entered Alexandria in October 642. The terms of the treaty were issued in a proclamation made by Amr to the people of Egypt. The proclamation offered protection to the, quote, person, property, religion, churches, and crosses, unquote, of the Egyptians, and promised to defend the people against their enemies. Meanwhile, 
Theodore ferried the remaining Byzantine forces to either Cyprus or Rhodes. When Omer entered Alexandria, he sent the following remarks to the caliph, quote, I have taken a city which I can but say that it contains 4,000 palaces, 4,000 baths, 400 theaters, 12,000 sellers of green vegetables, and 40,000 tributary Jews, end quote. When the Arabs entered the city, it was uncertain what they did with the Library of Alexandria, if it existed at all. One legend states that the caliph ordered any book in the library that did not agree with Islamic religious doctrine to be destroyed, and any book that did agree with Islamic religious doctrine was deemed unnecessary and therefore should be destroyed. Amr carried out the caliph's orders, and it was said that it took six months to destroy the contents of the library. Now the big question is, is this true? Probably not, since there were many incidents prior to 642 in which the great library could have been destroyed. In 48 BCE, as Julius Caesar was besieged in the Brucheon district in Alexandria, Caesar set fire to the harbor, and it was alleged that this fire spread to the library and destroyed it. The museum buildings in Alexandria were said to have been raised to the ground by Aurelian in 273. We know that in the 4th century, the elder library perished, but a younger library, the Serapium, continued to exist. But in the late 4th century, as the Roman Empire was Christianizing, relics of a pagan past in Alexandria, such as the Temple of Serapis, were destroyed. The last time the Serapium was mentioned was in 416. Given the history of destruction, it was likely that the Library of Alexandria was destroyed prior to the Islamic conquests. Meanwhile, during the winter of 641-642, to Amr founded a new city on the site of his encampment near the fortress of Babylon. That city, Fustat, would later become the capital of the province of Egypt. As Umar prevented Amr from making Alexandria the capital, Fustat experienced rapid growth. It was in Fustat that Amr ordered the construction of the Mosque of Amr, the oldest mosque in Egypt. The other great project Amr undertook was an excavation of Trajan's Canal, which connected the Babylon fortress to the Red Sea. That way, voyagers could have traveled from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea much prior to the completion of the Suez Canal. Despite these works of peace, Amr wasn't ready to declare his mission accomplished, since there were a few remote places that still remained hostile. Thanks to a steady stream of reinforcements, Amr now had at his disposal a large number of troops. Amr decided on a conquest of Pentapolis, the Byzantine province directly west of Egypt, starting in the beginning of 643. The march was easy, since much of the region was fertile. The first city, Barca, surrendered under treaty. From Barca, Amr continued to Tripolis, which shut its gates. For several weeks, the Muslims established a blockade. Then, they realized that Tripolis was undefended from the harbor side. Having forced a passage between the city wall and the sea, the Muslims entered the city and captured it. Moving swiftly, Amr managed to catch the citizens of Sabra off guard and take the city. This marked the end of Amr's rapid campaign. He returned to Egypt filled with captives and spoils. However, in the south, the threat of Nubian tribes still existed. Amr launched an expedition against the Nubians, but due to the exceptional skill of the Nubian archers, Amr was forced to retreat. Fighting would continue sporadically for several years until a peace treaty was made during the reign of Uthman. Now that I discussed the conquest of Egypt, I'm going to shift to the conquest of Armenia and the wars in the Caucasus Mountains. While it is clear that the conquest of Armenia began after the conquest of Syria, the events differ based on the sources. We know that Ayyad ibn Ghanam began incursions into southwest Armenia in 639 to 640. According to Muslim historians, the next attack took place in 642. Four corps, 
two of which were commanded by Habib ibn Maslama and Salman ibn Rabia, advanced into the frontier regions of northern Armenia, but they were driven back on all sides and forced to retreat. According to Armenian historians, a great invasion took place in 642, in which the army sacked the city of Duin, carrying off 35,000 prisoners. The next year, the Muslims invaded again, but they were decisively defeated by the Armenian prince Theodorus Rostuni and forced to retreat. The Arabs would launch various incursions into Armenia in the following years. These incursions would have put the Muslims into contact with the Khazars. Who were the Khazars? The Khazars were a nomadic group that migrated from Inner and Central Asia into what is now the South Russian steppes by the 6th century. Understanding that their shamanic ways would be insulting to surrounding powers, the Khazar ruling elite would eventually convert to Judaism, as it allowed them to adopt a monotheistic religion without appearing to please either the Byzantine Empire or the Roshanian Caliphate. However, it should be noted that the Khazar Khaganate was a multinational, multi-religious empire. The Khazars, as Byzantine allies, were instrumental in Heraclius' invasion of the Sassanid Empire during the Byzantine-Sassanid War of 602-628. The Muslims first reached the North Caucasus by 641 or 642. Fighting raged around the cities of Durbent, a strategic town that controlled access to the steppe from Transcaucasia, Samandar, and Balanjar. It was said that at one time or another, the latter two were the capitals of the Khazar Khaganate. Balanjar was first attacked in 642 by an Arab force led by Abdul Rahman ibn Rabia al-Bahili, during the course of which the Arabs may have penetrated into the Khazar heartland before being pushed back. During the next decade, Abdul Rahman would launch a series of raids into Khazar territory. Under Umar's reign, the Caliphate expanded to lands that were becoming increasingly distant from Medina, including northern Syria, Egypt, Armenia, and the southern Caucasus. However, there was one region I didn't discuss yet. Although the Muslims defeated the Sassanids at Al-Qadisiyah and captured their capital at Tessaphon, Yasajard was still loose, and there were still Sassanid armies in the field. Next time, I'll cover the eastward expansion of the Rashidun Caliphate, culminating in the battle that would put the final nail in the coffin for the fall of the Sassanid Empire.